That's all right, come on. Yesterday was a monumental win. And I'm being as serious as I possibly can what I'm about to say. You literally helped save a person's life yesterday. We could talk about protests and activism and we could theorize about it all, but this is where the rubber meets the road. Purvis Payne is no longer on death row. Andre Johnson is a professor, pastor, and activist. And for the past year, he's led a group of protesters at Union and McLean in Memphis, Tennessee. It's a corner that has been used for anti-death penalty actions in years past. It's a busy and wide intersection. There's a Starbucks, a Walgreens, and an upscale ramen joint. So the day before Thanksgiving, about 20 demonstrators spread out for their weekly rally. They're wearing shirts and they're holding signs that say, Free Purvis Pain. Johnson's group believes Purvis Payne is innocent of the crimes that landed him on death row. Regardless, they also believe he has an intellectual disability, and that alone makes it unconstitutional to execute him. So for 34 years, Payne has lived in this limbo on Tennessee's death row, until now. Less than one month before his historical intellectual disability hearing was set to begin, the district attorney made a surprising announcement that after they'd conducted expert assessments— they were no longer going to challenge his disability claim and that his sentences should be reduced to life instead of death. This case spans more than three decades, numerous attorneys and a hard execution date. You're about to learn how a man with a disability was so hard to diagnose, nearly unconstitutionally killed, and why it took so long to remove him from the row when he never should have been there in the first place. This is the Undark Podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Chain. Purvis Payne's case is complicated. There's a tangle of critiqued forensics, misplaced evidence, and racism in Shelby County, Tennessee. But it also showcases this convoluted relationship between how scientists and medical professionals understand intellectual disabilities, and then how courts and legislatures interpret and use that science as they make life and death decisions. Tasha Lemley has the story. In 1988, Purvis Payne was convicted of the brutal murder of Sharice Christopher and her daughter, an attempted murder of her young son. These are crimes he says he didn't commit. Heads up, their murders were violent, and the details are graphic. Payne says he found Christopher with a knife in her neck. He panicked, and he tried to help. Because that's what he was raised to do, to be a help. Now, you and I might not have made that decision because we would have realized that this wasn't something we should touch. But that's where the intellectual disability comes in and, and ability to make, you know, sound judgments. This is a man that we believe is wrongfully convicted. That's attorney Kim Kia Harris. She's part of a task force trying to change the legal system in Memphis. She believes Payne's disability was one of the factors that led to his conviction. But proving that disability, navigating a tangle of legislative curves, has been a lifelong process for Payne. I call him Bubba. That's what I call him. This is Payne's youngest sister, Rolanda Holman. Growing up, we had we had fun. You know, we um, had a loving family. When my parents would go to church on Friday nights, we were so happy that they would leave 
us here, uh, Bubba home with us because we were like, yeah, you know, we're getting ready to party now. And we would dance and make dance routines and just have a blast. You know, he was always that caring person. Um, if you ever saw one of the pictures that are out there with him holding my sisters in my hand, that's how he was all the time. These days, Rolanda and her brother are still close. They talk regularly and she's able to help him out with a few things. So he he gets very excited when he gets mail. But when he gets ready to write them back, he'll call me and say, this is what I wrote. And he'll read it to me. Um, and some words he just don't know how to put, you know, what do I need to say? This is what I'm trying to say. And it could be something as I'm happy. Oh, I thought I had to put a particular word in there. No, happy that you are able to, you know, think you're thinking of me. I'm happy that you're supporting me. Yeah, just simple as that. Oh, okay. You know, something really, really, he said, I knew you'd know, you know, because he, he thinks I'm really smart, right? <laughs> and I'm saying, he said, I knew you'd not, I had to read this. I didn't want to send it out, you know, like crazy or whatever. And I said, you know what, Bubba? I said, just write it how you feel. Rolanda says even though he was seven years older, she knew Bubba couldn't help with her homework. And no matter how many times their mother explained, he didn't remember to separate light and dark clothing for laundry. As I became an adult and I look back and, of course, different terms began to develop over the years about, you know, intellectual disabilities and things like that. And so I realized, oh, this is what, you know, Bubba was experiencing. And in Mr. Payne's case, we have a rich, rich social history that tells the story of someone who had real problems who failed a couple of grades, who was never able to pass the Tennessee um, test to get out of high school, um, who was recognized by multiple teachers as being cognitively impaired, um, who had difficulty reading, who had difficulty spelling, who had difficulty with math. This is neuropsychiatrist George Woods, so he studies co-occurring medical and psychiatric disorders. This rich social history he's talking about, well, it's something to remember. It's one of the pieces needed to decide the constitutionality of executing pain. The day Sharice Christopher and one of her children were murdered, Payne went to visit his girlfriend testified he followed a noise and he found Christopher and her two young children brutally stabbed in a nearby apartment. Christopher had a knife sticking out of her neck. She and her two-year-old daughter, Lacey Jo, they died that day. Payne says he bent down to help her and he pulled the knife out. He tried to call 911 and he dialed 411 instead. That's a number for information. Then he said his situation dawned on him. He was covered in blood. He thought people might think he had committed the crime and he ran. It was obviously um, a choice that was made out of ignorance, right? Um, and it, it's an irrational choice. It's an irrational choice. Uh, you know, and again, can I attribute it just to someone that has intellectual disability, of course not. Can I, would it be consistent 
with someone who their entire life under, under no stress uh, has difficulty making good choices? Yes. Payne's choices the day of the crime, that's one place where his disability may have come into play. Woods says... That clinical state of the person makes them vulnerable, makes them less than when we talk about a cognitive state. We have to figure it out in terms of the crime itself, but we know that we're working with someone that whose brain is more vulnerable. And um, I think that's important. Payne was 20 years old when he was convicted. He had no criminal record or drug history. According to court testimony, police responded to a call from a neighbor who heard blood-curdling screams from the upstairs apartment. They arrived, found Payne outside the scene. He said he was afraid he would be mistaken for the murderer, so he panicked and he ran. He was arrested at a friend's house, tried and found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted murder, and he was sentenced to death. In the last three decades, Payne has seen eight appeals denied. He's seen science change and legislatures try to keep up. He's had an execution date come and go. And it took all these years for advocates and attorneys to change laws and to confirm his intellectual disability. To fully understand this case, we need to travel back in time a bit. Through the years, people living with sub-average cognitive functioning have been frequently misunderstood or even feared. Even the words used to describe their experience can be dehumanizing and cause marginalization. Here's a university training video from the 1950s. Three grades of deficiency are recognized. Moderately retarded individuals are referred to as morons. Those who are severely retarded are classed as imbeciles. And the very severely retarded are termed idiots. By any name, intellectual disability has long been a part of the human experience. In the recent past, it was popularly referred to as mental retardation, the R word, as it's called in the field. That's Elizabeth Dykins. She's a professor at Vanderbilt University. She studies areas of strength in people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So Dykins thinks of disability classification as a series of nesting umbrellas. So the top umbrella, this includes all disabilities. That's a huge umbrella. And that could include people who become disabled as they age because of age-related macular degeneration or blindness or dementia, or you hear about people that go out on disability because they pulled their back while they were at work. Now, under that umbrella are developmental disabilities, which Dykin says, as defined by the federal government, are lifelong conditions marked by gaps in several areas of daily functioning, and they begin as the brain is still developing. Under those... Intellectual disabilities. And this is where we get into some pretty muddy territory when it comes to diagnosis. Dykin says that for some of the 7 million Americans living with an intellectual disability disorder, we can point to a cause, like an injury or a genetic condition. But for about half of all cases, it's not that clear. Unfortunately, there aren't really any biomarkers or blood tests above and beyond, say, a diagnosis of cerebral palsy or genetic syndrome. Um, even the diagnosis of autism is based on behavioral and observations and developmental history. So you're right, it is messy. So for someone like Payne to be diagnosed, Dykin says it's up to a skilled assessor to take a look at three things. First, deficits in cognitive functioning. 
with an IQ score of less than 70, plus or minus testing error, deficits in adaptive behavior. That one's number two. It's daily life stuff like communication and social skills, kind of getting around in the world. How do people get along with others? How do they uh, make use of recreation time? How do they cope? How do they take care of themselves, their hygiene, where they live, and how do they get about in the community? And number three, all of this has to be identifiable in childhood. Age of onset in the developmental years, which is typically defined as before age 18. Meaning, a traumatic brain injury could certainly affect cognitive functioning. If that happened under the age of 18, that could be considered an intellectual disability. But if the same injury and same effects happened at, say, 30 years old, it wouldn't qualify as an intellectual disability disorder. So these three criteria, cognitive functioning, adaptive behavior, and age of onset, they're the standard for how an intellectual disability disorder is diagnosed. For most people, diagnosis is important because it creates understanding and a path for government services, and it guides a person's support network in their care. But the diagnosis is also something to consider in the legal system, especially when it comes to the death penalty. Capital crimes involving perpetrators with intellectual disabilities, they've happened. And when Payne was convicted, it was permissible under the Eighth Amendment to execute someone with an intellectual disability. But then in 2002, the U.S. Supreme Court decided in Atkins versus Virginia It's unconstitutional to execute someone with that diagnosis. Here's Justice John Paul Stevens. We now hold that the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment categorically forbids the execution of the mentally retarded. There's a few reasons the Supreme Court decided people with intellectual disabilities face a special risk of wrongful execution. One, because of their disabilities in areas of reasoning, judgment, and control of their impulses, however, they do not act with the level of moral culpability that characterizes the most serious adult criminal conduct. Carol Westlake is the executive director of the Tennessee Disability Coalition. She agrees that intellectually disabled people like Payne, they're less culpable of a crime they're involved in and more likely to be convicted of a crime they weren't. First, with the crime itself. Somebody befriends them, gets them to do something that they know is probably not their best interest, but they don't have a clear understanding of the consequences of that and the risks that they're taking. And whether or not they're innocent, they're less likely to be able to navigate the system to defend themselves. Moreover, their impairments can jeopardize the reliability and fairness of capital proceedings against mentally retarded defendants. Westlake says defendants often struggle to be understood by police and lawyers. And they sometimes even act against their own interests. And folks with intellectual disabilities, because they lack judgment and because they are so used to being stigmatized and um, will oftentimes um, try to pass. So they will pretend to understand their rights when they don't really understand their rights. They might want to please authority figures, right? Dr. Woods says this is called the cloak of competence you will find that many people with intellectual disability learn how to mask it. You go into a restaurant, right? You can't read. You pick up the menu. You say, oh, you know, I think I'll just have what you have. So the Atkins decision was a great move towards reducing the risk of executing someone who may have been manipulated. Or for someone like Purvis Payne, 
who may not have been able to help as much in his own defense and innocence claim. One problem with Atkins, though, is that the court left it up to each individual state to decide exactly what intellectual disability meant for their capital cases. And states, they found ways to evade Atkins. Dr. Woods. Each state is able to define the parameters of the legal decision, but that's much different than defining the parameters of what intellectual disability is. So it's really been the different states attempting to gerrymander um, intellectual disability that has, has been confusing, not the standard. Georgia, Texas, and Florida. They're really good examples of the less good ways some states set their parameters. Georgia currently has a beyond reasonable doubt standard for proving intellectual disability in capital cases. It's the harshest in the country, so far making it nearly impossible for a jury to agree someone is guilty, yet disabled and exempt from the death penalty. And after Atkins, Texas courts designed their own system of standards to determine someone's level of disability and if they were eligible for execution. These Brasinio factors included the Lenny standard. It's named after Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Might as well spend my time telling you things. You forget them and I'll tell you again. I tried and I tried, but it didn't do no good. I remember about the rabbits, George. Oh, yeah. The only thing you can remember is them rabbits. Meaning someone, if convicted of murder, had to be at least as disabled as the fictional character Lenny Small to be exempt from the death penalty. After the U.S. Supreme Court struck down these standards, Texas now applies contemporary clinical standards to their capital cases. However, according to the nonprofit Death Penalty Information Center, after Atkins and before this update, Texas executed more than a dozen people who likely had intellectual disabilities. Also after Atkins, Florida set a standard of a single or bright-line IQ score. It was kind of like a pass-fail. So if someone was assessed to have an IQ of 70, they were disabled. 71? Not disabled. Florida is now also applying more appropriate clinical standards to their capital cases involving people with intellectual disabilities, though their protections are not applied retroactively. And, it, and it's this business about single IQ score that... And I get that courts love that sort of thing, right? Because I'm going, it's really messy. <laughs> you know, and they're like, we don't, you know, and lawyers and judges don't want messy, you know? And, and, you know, it's like pregnant, not pregnant. Got it. I'm on it. You know, intellectually intellectual disabled or not. Well. <laughs> and she says IQ score is not static. It changes for all of us over time. Scientists' understanding of the brain developmental period changes over time, too. And because of this, expert definitions only get tweaked over time, like the psychiatric tool, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And, you know, every 12 or so years, it gets updated because the science changes because we know new kinds of things. And the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, or AAIDD, well, they also change their definitions. Their definition, it, it really comports with the DSM. They have very slight variations. All of this can be difficult for courts. They prefer clear definitions. There's this changing, this changing field. Not ideal, 
but it's not distance or volume. You know? okay. <laughs> not a light switch. Not a light switch, but I love the light switch. <laughs> yeah. Everybody wants a light switch. <laughs> Whenever understanding changes and definitions are adjusted, States that still have the death penalty each have a moral responsibility to check themselves and make sure their laws align with current science. So what does all of this mean for a case like Purvis Payne's? Honestly, as the Purvis Payne issue came up, over this last year, um, and the issue around intellectual disability made us realize that we had missed an opportunity to fix this definition. And so we thought that was a really important thing to go back and, and try to do. And this takes time. Tennessee had no ban against executing someone with an intellectual disability when Payne was convicted back in 1988. So it wasn't really assessed in terms of um, looking at an exclusion from the death penalty because it didn't exist. So the testing that was done was not thorough, and it was really done more in terms of looking at mitigation. The jury didn't really get to hear about how his intellectual functioning would have impacted decisions he made, for example, to try to help the victim or to run um, when he was faced with the police. Kelly Henry is Payne's attorney. Her team has been on his case just since 2019. She says that Payne couldn't raise a claim in 1990 when Tennessee did ban the execution of people with intellectual disabilities because it didn't apply to people who had already been convicted. It also used a single IQ score as the determining factor. And Payne, he previously tested too high. At different times and on different tests, his scores have ranged from 68 to 78. The biggest issue 30 years ago was this belief that um, IQ was like an actuarial score, that you had to have this number of 70 um, that you know, was, would be spit out on a test. And that became very rigid in our law, in our case law. It became known as a bright line rule, even though science tells us that nobody scores the same on these tests. There's you know a standard error of measurement in all science. And in the context of the intellectual disability, that standard error of measurement is you know, plus or minus five points. Dr. Woods, he says IQ testing is rife with other problems. He says this one test, well, it doesn't tell us all of what we need to know about neurological function. There are additional issues of ethnicity and culture. And then there's something else wild. The older the test gets, the more out of date the norms are. It's called norm obsolescence. So if you're giving somebody a test that's particularly old, then their score will be artificially inflated simply because the norming data is out of date. Basically, IQ tests have to be re-standardized or kind of calibrated over time to make up for changes in our culture, to account for the stuff we've picked up along the way, the stuff we just now know. You know, some of his test scores appear high because he had a score of 78. Mm -hmm. So that appears high. But when you look at the norm, norming data for that score, you realize that he's actually scoring in the intellectually disabled range. And when he was given newer tests that were, you know, 
normed more contemporaneously, he scored on the lower end. So he definitely meets that definition of intellectual disability. So here we have a man convicted of a capital crime a couple of years before his state non-retroactively bans the execution of people with intellectual disabilities, and more than a decade before the Atkins decision. And then when the Atkins verdict did pass, Henry says Payne couldn't file a claim because Tennessee was using a bright line score of 70. And he had an unnormed 78, so he didn't qualify. And even when the Tennessee Supreme Court later determined that the standard error of measurement should be considered when looking at someone's IQ in a capital case, which could have brought Payne's score into a disability range, his lawyers, they faced a nightmarish system of bureaucracy. He couldn't get into court because there was no procedure for him to get into court. Um, it really was a procedural technicality. There's, there's not a piece of paper to file. Right. And, and, although folks tried. Okay. And I, I will say this. The, the team before me filed probably six different lawsuits trying to figure out a way to get him into court. And every single time the court said, no, there's a procedural reason why you can't use this um, theory to get into court. She says the Tennessee Supreme Court took notice in 2016 and told the legislature to fix the procedural problem since they had no interest in executing someone who is intellectually disabled. And this took time. Meanwhile, Payne got an execution date in 2019. That's when Henry and her team joined his case and started making some noise. Thanks in part to COVID, Payne got a temporary reprieve from execution. Meanwhile, new bills got introduced in the Tennessee legislature. And then in late April 2021 in the Tennessee General Assembly. Because the U.S. Supreme Court and the Tennessee Supreme Court also agree that the Tennessee's law must rely on updated medical standards as provided by manuals such as the DSM-5 and the AAIDD-11, and not on outdated and inaccurate measures such as a single IQ score, the requirement for a specific IQ IQ score has been removed from this legislation. This legislation also provides a procurement, a procedural path for the very limited number of individuals with an intellectual disability who are already under the death sentence and who have not had their intellectual disability claims fully adjudicated by the courts on the merits. This bill created clarity, and it strengthened the protection of individuals with intellectual disability from execution in Tennessee. In other words, it fixed the procedural gap Payne's been in for more than 30 years. There was finally a paper to file. And refiled the new claim on Payne's behalf just 24 hours after the new law passed, and courts agreed his claim should be fully heard. Payne's hearing was set to begin December 13, 2021, and there was a flurry of activity in preparation. The state's expert conducted an in-person evaluation of Payne. They also interviewed former teachers and family members, in part to make an attempt to accurately place the age of onset of any deficiencies. Again, neuropsychiatrist George Woods. Well, the the first thing that you want to do um, is you want to have a history that tells you something about who he was before 18. Is that the social history is so relevant. And the data, the uh, medical history, the uh, school history, the um, testing within the school history, the social history, who knew him? Who knew him in the environment? What, is, what do his friends say about him? You know, what do his teachers say about him? 
The state filed a motion for their expert to have access to decades of prison records. They also wanted the right to interview prison staff, but they ended up withdrawing that request. Experts say prison staff aren't qualified to testify to an intellectual disability. From Wood's perspective, for testimony to be relevant in a case like Payne's, you'd want... Someone with clinical judgment. Clinical judgment is a specialized kind of understanding of the subtleties, of the nuances, of the special needs of the people that have this disorder. Understands that seeing someone that is a cousin that grew up with this person or seeing someone that's a teacher that taught this person is much more valuable than seeing someone that is a prison guard that may inter- that has no technical training that may interact with them for five minutes or 10 minutes a day. Plus, experts like Woods say adaptive behaviors can actually improve in a structured environment such as death row. Both the AAIDD and Social Security, which is also actually involved in this, both say prison settings don't help. It's, not, it's really not a value to evaluate someone in a confined setting because they have supports. The assessments have to be done with as little support as possible. Prison life is a very supported life. You don't have to make your meals. You don't have to do, do your washing. Your medications are given to you. You don't have to think about so many things that are structured into your environment and actually make a person look better than they really are. All the while these assessments were happening, and attorneys were debating methods and access, since his temporary reprieve was over, Purvis Payne could have gotten a new execution date from the Tennessee Supreme Court at any time. It wasn't protected simply because he had an upcoming court date. But as we learned... Purvis Payne is no longer on death death, row. After their investigation... The state's expert convinced the Shelby County DA that Payne likely has an intellectual disability disorder. And because of that, they stopped pursuing the death penalty in his case. If the hearing had happened, appeals, they could have lasted for years. At the short hearing to have his death sentence removed, Payne came into the courtroom and immediately cried. And he embraced Kelly Henry. He kind of hung on her. And Henry says, I've got you. Just two and a half minutes after Payne entered the room, Judge Skane confirmed his death sentence was formally vacated. These 16 seconds ended decades of wondering when he'd wake up to the date he'd be killed. All right, well, the order is vacating the capital sentences of Mr. Payne based on the findings of the experts in this matter that he is intellectually disabled. So the death sentences are hereby vacated or set aside. Purvis Payne is the first person to avoid execution under the new Tennessee law. Henry expects about a dozen more inmates on Tennessee's death row to use this same new pathway to try to prove their intellectual disabilities.
Today, more than half of all states have either formally ended the death penalty or have a moratorium on its use. And 10 more states only haven't executed anyone in a decade or more. People from marginalized communities are disproportionately more likely to be executed, and activists are pushing to make sure people with intellectual disabilities don't face this irrevocable punishment. Payne's case shows that even when the science is clear, and it often isn't, it can take teams of scientists, doctors, lawyers, and legislators decades to update all the manuals, handbooks, policies, laws, and bureaucratic processes. And as they struggle, people die. Recently, Ernest Johnson was executed in Missouri. He's a man who many believe had a clear intellectual disability. And Wesley Kuntz remains on Indiana's death row because of one IQ point and a disagreement over age of onset. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear the case, and Justice Sotomayor published an 11-page dissent on the refusal. So now Kelly Henry and her team continue moving forward on Payne's innocence claim. And supporters for his case are increasing, from the Innocence Project to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, founded by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to a host of online supporters. And Payne, he's grateful. Free Purpose Payne! Free Purpose Payne! So Purvis, it's been a year since people have been gathering on street corners in Memphis in support of you. What has it felt like for you this past year to know these folks are out there bearing witness, hoping to set you free? Wow. I feel so, so overwhelming doing these, um, during these times. You know, it just gives me a hope and a purpose that I never, never knew before. And I'm so, so grateful, so grateful. And I love all of them and I love all of you. And uh, I'm just, I just thank Jesus for you. And I just like to say, please keep standing with me. Tasha, thank you so much for bringing us this story and for joining me to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much for letting me do it. This has been a story that has been on my mind for, I guess, three years now. So to see this finally come together, and especially at such a pivotal time in the case, um, it's just really thrilling. And I'm I'm really humbled and, and grateful to get to be a, a little part of it. One of the points that we just didn't have time to really get into in the main piece is his ongoing Innocence Project case. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. So one of the um, the biggest thing that's happened in his innocence claim over, over the last year is that DNA, DNA was finally tested on items that had never been tested before. And that was another court battle. So, again, we couldn't have gotten into that in this story. Um, it was another battle, but it finally DNA was tested. And it was found that, especially when it comes to the knife itself, um, it matches with his testimony that he found that came upon this horrible scene 
went down to help the victim and pulled the knife out by the blade. And so Purvis's DNA is on the hilt of the knife and not on the handle. And there is an unidentified male's DNA on the handle that is not Purvis's. And it was too degraded um, to figure out exactly who it was or run run it through a database. But that evidence alone matches his testimony that he has stuck with for more than 30 years. And um, also, it, you know, it turns out when, when you know, um, Purvis's team asked for everything that could be tested to be tested, um, at that point they believed all the evidence was present, come to find out it's not. So things like the victim's fingernail clippings, they're missing. And so things have gone unaccounted for. And that, that's a really hard part of this case. What is the next step here in Payne's case? So the hope moving forward is the day this podcast comes out. So maybe the day you're listening to this, January 31st, the Judge Skane will determine whether Purvis's sentences will be served consecutively or concurrently. And Tennessee is actually favorable to concurrency. So that should be that determination should come down this week. And um if his sentences are determined to be able to be cons- be served concurrently, he could be eligible for parole in as early as six years. And so that's one of the hopes moving forward, though the, the largest hope is, you know, from his family and supporters and team is that he will be determined innocent at some point. Tasha Lemley is a freelance journalist and radio producer based in Nashville, Tennessee. Our theme music was produced by the Undark team, and music in today's episode is by Winston Harrison. Special thanks to Stacey Rector, Bijan Sivoshi, Tony Gonzalez, Winston Harrison, Rob Durham, Laramie Renee, David Huber, Kim Cannon, and Mark Lemley. I'm your host, Lydia Chain. See you next month.